With democracy itself on the line this election year, we must remain open to the possibility of transformation. Those are some of the opening words of a recent essay in The Guardian by Kansas writer Sarah Smarsh. The headline was, How's Arguing with Trump Voters Working Out for You? Smarsh is uniquely qualified to question Americans about all of their political assumptions at this point. Her 2018 book, Heartland, a memoir of working hard and being broke in the richest country on earth, was a finalist for the National Book Award. But more importantly to some of us here in Kansas, it refuted a lot of lazy thinking about class and poverty in America. I'm CJ Janovey, and I'm so excited to welcome Sarah Smarsh to the Kansas Reflector podcast. We'll talk about arguing with Trump voters in a little bit, but first, Sarah, how's your own life different in the couple of years since Heartland's been out? Oh, gosh. Well, first, CJ, let me say thanks for having me on and for the, the great introduction. Um, the couple of years since Heartland came out have been a pretty wild ride for a, a journalist with a very humble background. Um, I've had some very um, improbable adventures and uh, encounters with national figures who read the book. And it's been sort of a, a writer's dream come true for me personally, as far as how the story relates to the national story and the big picture and the media profession to which you and I belong. Um, you know, I, I, I hope that I have been just one voice in a chorus of people who have really been uh, trying to expand the narrative about places like rural Kansas, uh, where I come from, to um, uh, give it its due as a complicated place full of all sorts of characters rather than a, a flat political stereotype. Well, tell us, can, can you tell us just a, a couple of those improbable encounters with, with national figures and, and what you think they, they were learning from you? Oh gosh, sure. Um, so, well, the, the first one that comes to mind, uh, and this is actually part of my my bio on my Instagram profile, Obama read my book. I just stated it, CJ. I, I was <laughs> hoping you would start with that one. <laughs> and, um, you know, you know, as well as I do, hailing from uh, the Midwestern ethos, it's uncomfortable for me to toot my own horn in such ways, but it is true. President Obama, whom, whom I admire greatly, uh, read Heartland, and that resulted in my um, uh, being a sort of moderator for uh, his foundation summit in Chicago last summer, uh, rather uh, last fall. I got to interview the uh, labor rights great Dolores Huerta um, on stage at the Obama Foundation Summit. So got to shake President Obama's hand and um, you know, he, uh, I'm sure some of your listeners will know, comes from uh, Kansas stock himself. His mother was a working class Wichita woman. And, uh, and I'm sure that he connected with the story in some of the, uh, some personal ways in, in that regard. Um, in, did you actually, did you actually talk to him? Did you have much chance to sort of even have a, a, a conversation? Uh, you know, it, it was just for a few minutes, um, and he does a very good job of, of coming across as very warm and engaged when he's, you know, having similar handshakes with a hundred people that same afternoon. But, uh, you know, he made, he kind of quipped, we come from the same people, we're, we're probably cousins. And um, so we kind of laughed together. Um, another one that comes to mind, and this is also in the realm of Washington, which you know, makes me feel good as someone who thinks of herself as a kind of civic journalist, um, that it spoke to folks in, in those sorts of policymaking circles. Senator Amy Klobuchar, 
was one of the early readers of the book and sort of, she hosted a kind of, um, uh, they called it a fireside chat with me around the book and, and its narratives for the Dem uh, Senate Democrats Rural Summit that was in the fall of 2018. And auspiciously, the, the same afternoon that she, or morning that she was inter interviewing me on stage in this forum uh, on behalf of Senate Democrats, she was whisked away by her people to go grill then uh, Supreme Court Justice nominee Brett Kavanaugh during his hearings um, in, in a, a rather famous exchange that happened that day between the two of them. And, uh, and then um, a senator from Montana stepped in and finished the interview. So, so all this CJ has made me, you know, feel like, wow, it's, um, it's, it's been like the honor of a lifetime to go on a ride like that as an author to not just connect with readers. And, and of course the, the common person quote unquote is my, is my ultimate uh, audience that I aspire to, but, um, but it's been very humbling to, to know that folks who kind of have their hands on the levers of power uh, saw something uh, worth reading in the book. Well, what's your, thank you for that. Cause what's the, what's the, What's your sense of how the quote unquote common person, which I think you and I both um, want to reach that audience more than any other, perhaps. What's your sense of, of the extent to which you think you really did reach those folks? And, and maybe do you, do you think that you changed perceptions of Kansas with that book? Well, I think of that group of readers, which is, you know, the the bulk of them, of course, as kind of two sides of the same coin in the way that they related to Heartland. One, on one side is folks like myself who, um, you know, they read this story of a, a kid in, in rural Kansas and some uh, class related challenges that she faced on her path. And they, they see themselves in that. And from those readers, I hear like, you know, I, I've, I've, I so rarely see myself in a story, in a movie, in a film, in a book. Um, and there's a, a sense of validation that comes with that. And that's, you know, incredibly heartening to me. On the other side of that coin then is the reader um, for whom that narrative is completely foreign in their own lives. Um, you know, they, they come from relative privilege in a more urban or coastal space and uh, places like Kansas are, are sort of mysterious to them. And then, and then they say to me, my eyes were opened, you know, in some way I, I had seen it as this sort of um, monolith. And now I understand there are all sorts of people, uh, including the characters of your family. And, and that's heartening in a different way because, you know, my objective in, in writing that story, which kind of interweaves memoir with a, a social critique and a little bit of historical analysis was to um, tell a deeper truth that really upends stereotypes that I find to be damaging, not just for the people that they are levied against, but for the people who carry those stereotypes in their hearts and minds. Can you, let's talk just a little bit more about that for the maybe, you know, small handful of folks who are listening who have not read your book. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, thinking about how to sort of summarize it, you know, it, it came out 15 years after another big effort to explain America by way of Kansas, let's say, uh, which is Thomas Frank's What's the Matter with Kansas? 
and you know his whole point of uh, was that conservatives quote stole the heart of America by convincing working class people to vote against their economic interests and your book at the very least suggests that it's a lot more complicated than that you know I, I have a lot of respect for Thomas Frank uh, and I agree with him on some things I do think that his sort of quintessential argument and the one that kind of made him uh, famous political analyst that, that you just cited has a, a little tinge of condescension to it I don't think that that's his intention um, but you know to, to suggest that someone votes against his own best interests suggests or implies I don't know a level of foolishness I suppose that you know I, I think you would be um, wrong to assign to great swaths of this country who whose votes might um, not make sense to um, some people on, a, on, on one side of the aisle, but their votes make sense to themselves. And, they're, and I'm interested as somebody who, who is from a space that in political terms is, is um, very homogeneously referred to as red. You know, I, I'm interested in, um, in going deeper, looking at all the complicated force, forces at work that go into that political behavior and those political leanings. Now, I agree with Frank that the right has been adept at leveraging, um, let's say, culture generally uh, toward its own ends, by, by which I mean, you know, saying we are the party of fill in the blank, God, patriotism, the flag, country music, pickup trucks, um, symbols of my life and upbringing that not so long ago were sort of inherently apolitical. They've been leveraged and politicized to great effect by the right. And, it, and, it's, and it's now a sort of political identity that, that works uh, when people show up to cast their ballots. That, that wasn't even true when I was a kid in the 80s. There wasn't that, you know, it, it was the Reagan era, so things were starting to shift, but but I don't remember there being like this, this tribal sense of belonging around party identification. If anything, we were averse to the idea of a political party. Um, now, so, so I agree with him on that point, but, but you know, you, you mentioned that with, with my book, I try to expand on that and, and complicate it. I think that there are some very valid reasons and, and predictable and understandable reasons that, that people from certain demographics are suspicious of the exact party and um, policy uh, related ideologies that in theory would help their cause. So what I'm saying here is if you grow up, let's say in a remote and isolated way, it's a mostly white area. So you're not even thinking about race. You're not even perceiving yourself as a member of a race, but rather just the, the normal color of skin. Um, and for, for you, every day is about trying to get by. You're, you're working in fields, your hands are bleeding. And every relationship that you have ever had to some idea of government, which is like out in some cloud called Washington DC or maybe even Topeka you don't know anybody that that works there you don't know anybody who knows anybody who works there 
you've never stepped foot there yourself. You've maybe never even been on an airplane. My grandpa who raised me on the small Kansas wheat farm where I grew up, um, had, I think he flew like twice in his entire life and the first time he was in his 50s. So what I'm saying is you are not only culturally distant from, but geographically and, and socioeconomically far removed from these centers of power and everything, every way you've ever related to the government has felt like a huge bummer. Federal policy, um, even though today there are farm subsidies that are, you know, we, that's, a, that's a whole podcast step unto itself. But essentially, policy has been engineered against the small family farm for a long time and very intentionally so. Um, so I'm, I'm speaking now to rural spaces that are that are agrarian and agricultural historically, and their relationship to the government is is understandably one of some distrust. And they are not a group that then simultaneously, you know, other groups that are um, marginalized in other ways have benefited somehow from some federal program that they they have a sense of of government as help. So, so there, right there, there's like this, um, there's this vulnerability for, to be exploited by, you know, I happen, I happen to agree with Thomas Frank on the left. I, on the left, I, I show my political cover, colors pretty often, um, that, that government is supposed to work for us and heck, why not use our tax dollars for programs that would help the struggling among us, which in the end helps all of us. But it's very easy to, if you're the government who wants to tear, if you're the party that wants to tear down government, it's very easy to manipulate that distrust within that population. So it isn't necessarily voting against your best interests when viewed within the context of that space. It's voting with the, um, the emotional undercurrent and the emotional truth of your life, which is a sense of detachment from any place that ever passed the law that affected your family. That was really beautifully said, and it, it gets us into a lot of what you're writing about in the Guardian article also. And I know writers don't write their own headlines, but that article is packaged, you know, how's arguing with Trump voters working out for you? You tell the story of Megan Phelps Roper and how she ended up leaving the Westboro Baptist Church and how it was strangers engaging with her respectfully on social media that that helped her begin to see other perspectives in the world. How do you think that could happen on a much larger scale? Well, we want to humble ourselves. And when, when I say we, I should specify people who are, and I don't care if you're a moderate Republican or, you know, a so-called far left progressive, if you are not buying what the Trump administration is selling, whatever your political background um, and you are concerned by the, um, you know, the, the family member you have who has has gone to the Trump side and dug his heels in and insists that we've got it all backwards. We're the dangerous ones, not them. Well, that is a, a direct byproduct of propaganda, misinformation, disinformation in our times. And for those of us who I believe will be on the right side of history. We can't go marching around feeling superior to and judging harshly as idiots, the people on the quote unquote other side, because the difference between you and that person is your ideas are superior. You know, there's no like, there's no moral equivalence between 
as I say in that Guardian article, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter protester and the, the neo-Nazi demonstrator. This isn't like two equally good sides at work here when democracy is on fire. But your ideas can be superior without you yourself being inherently superior. And the way I know that is firsthand is that I grew up, you know, I would say like in a moderately conservative environment. I sort sort of thought of myself as socially liberal and, and economically conservative, fiscally conservative. I don't, I no longer think that those two things can actually coexist. But anyway, that's how I thought of myself. And and my political views changed dramatically in my early, you know, not long after leaving home and in my early 20s. And so things that when I was very young, I thought I was very suspicious of, let's say affirmative action. Once my information sources changed, I thought, well, that information, uh, affirmative action is right as rain. So what changed wasn't like, it, I didn't, it, it wasn't a fabric of my character that changed. It was what I was being told about different systems and power structures and data information and about this country and how it runs. So um, as long as we are looking down our nose at someone for their views, we are, we are blocking off any opportunity for um, respectful dialogue that might give that, allow that person to have the information that would hasten a change that, that they and only they ultimately can make. Are you seeing that sort of change in one-on-one -on -one conversations in in your sort of immediate circles here in Kansas? This is a great question, and this is a good moment for me to say everything I wrote in that article is much easier said than done, um, or much easier written than done. Um, you know, I've got. It, it might surprise listener your listeners to know, and so I'm I'm gonna quickly mentioned that um, my white working class family is overwhelmingly progressive and Democrat in its voting. That, that hasn't always been the case, um, but it has been since I would say mm, around the end of the George W. Bush administration. Um, and my, my partner who, who is a white construction worker, um, same political leanings. Actually, he's one of the most radical progressives I've ever known and he's a white male construction worker in Kansas. But, um, but we both have you know, family members who um, are, have voted for Trump and talk about voting for Trump again. And we have um, maintained lines of communication uh, with those folks in the spirit of, you know, the, the ideals that, that I'm um, touting in, in that Guardian piece in, of dialogue, um, open exchange, uh, you know, condemning dangerous ideas while, you know, still um, keeping an, an, an open heart toward the, the person who's holding those ideas in, in in hopes that they might change. Um, you know, I think as soon as that sort of fabric breaks down, as as painful and frustrating as those exchanges can be, that, that's all we've got. You know, ultimately um, that very domestic, very private, very intimate dialogue is just as important, maybe even more important than 
press conferences in the Rose Garden in terms of um, democracy, living or dying. So those, you know, and, and I should mention that um, this sort of work, which is emotional labor, it can even be for some people maybe physically threatening, um, should never be expected of uh, marginalized or disadvantaged groups. Um, if, if you're white and have other privileges um, along the line, you know, whether we're talking about sexual orientation or class or race, uh, wherever you fall on that sort of continuum of, of power and privilege, if, uh, if you feel safe and, and have the protections that, that come with some, with some aspect of your identity to engage in this sort of work, we sure need you right now. You talk about democracy literally being on the line at this moment. The election at the top of the ticket is either going to go one way or the other. And what do you think, what do you think happens next either way for democracy? Well, there's no doubt that much like um, this pandemic that we're all living through isn't just like one day going to be cured and then we all resume activity from the before times without our masks and hug and high five. Um, similarly, politically, regardless of who wins in November, um, let's say Joe Biden wins. Um, uh, everything that Trump represents is, is not then defeated. It's just no longer, you know, in the Oval Office. So um, we've got a lot of work ahead. We've got like, I would say a couple generations of work ahead in terms of um, rebuilding, not just rebuilding, but like building something better than we ever had. Um, something that's more like a democracy than what we've always claimed we were. Um, so, so what happens next, I think is we're going to have to, and you know, here again, I'm going to show my political colors again, because, you know, Biden wasn't my candidate. And the reason is I'm not really interested in going back to normal. For a lot of people, normal sucked even before we got to this crisis point. So um, I understand that that sense of normalcy or, or his familiarity um, appeals to uh, much of the electorate and okay, that's the strategy we're writing, I'm fine. But like, we better be envisioning what we wanna create that is sustainable, that is democratic, that is truly representative, that is equitable, that is just. Um, because if we're just trying to like get back to some like late 20th century version of rich capitalist America, um, I, I can tell you, cause, cause I was there in, um, you know, a, a trailer home parked on a patch of Kansas Prairie um, those weren't great times for everybody. And, you know, God help you if you're a person of color in the meantime, it's like, um, what's next is those of us that are, that are interested in all of those values need to not just be, you know, like putting out fires, batting down, um, you know, aspiring autocrats and fascism. Um, but forward thinking about what we can be building uh, that will head off the next Donald Trump and the one after that. Because so long as the conditions from which he arose exist, um, there's no end in sight. 
you have a new book coming out this month. The topic is one that I think everybody loves and everybody can agree on. So this new book is, is about Dolly Parton. The title is She Come By It Natural, Dolly Parton and the Woman Who Lived Her Songs. Sarah, why Dolly Parton right now? <laughs> well, believe it or not, um, this has everything to do with your last question, which is in 2016, um, uh, an election year that we all remember well, uh, every you know media narrative about the place that I come from, rural America, um, white working class America was was this, you know, caricature of, you know, racist Bubba at the diner on Main Street with the MAGA hat. And I was like, you know, I'm, I'm not one to sentimentalize the place that I come from, never want to gloss over the ugly bits, but it's like, that ain't all it is. And I, and so I was just thinking like, wow, I'd sure like to amplify a sort of like antidote to those toxic yet, you know, partially true stories. And that same year, 2016, Dolly Parton uh, had a new album out and she was touring with this, this big arena tour for the first time in many years. And I grew up on, you know, old country music and um, the sorts of stories that Dolly Parton tells in her songs. Uh, it occurred to me in 2016, which was a year of all sorts of bigotry, including misogyny. Um, you know, your listeners will, will recall the vitriol that was directed toward then candidate Hillary Clinton. It was also the sort of dawn of the Me Too movement and grab them by the pussy access Hollywood tape. And, and so as a woman from a, a poor rural space, it was like, oh, Dolly Parton is touring. What a bomb that is for my soul to just like be following her and reading about her. Um, then there was, there's this great magazine called No Depression, which uh, covers roots music. And they had a fellowship to basically write in depth about some intersection between Americana country music and broader social issues and culture. Uh, so I applied for that fellowship to talk about Dolly Parton as an exemplar of what I would call working class feminism. And I, what I, I was realizing at that time is that country music and specifically that written and sung by women was the formative, form, formative feminist text of my life. You know, I was raised by women who didn't go to college. They, they never studied feminist theory, um, but they embodied feminism's tenets even if they were averse to the term because it had been somehow weaponized by um, you know, political forces, they were feminists through and through in their being. And it struck me that Dolly Parton um, was, a, was a perfect model to explain that. So anyway, I got the fellowship and, and I, wrote, uh, I wrote these stories over the course of 2017. They were published originally in serial form uh, for that magazine and, and now happily are uh, coming out in book form uh, in another election year. My copy is on pre-order and I can't wait to read it. This, this <laughs> next question is, it will be the last one and it's an impossible one, but what's your favorite Dolly Parton song? Oh my gosh, it is indeed impossible. Um, 
But uh, what, how refreshing to answer a question like this in these times, you know, when we're all just, we're like <laughs> the, all the crises afoot and just to remember that there's like, there's culture and art and there's beauty and there's things that bring us joy. Um, my favorite Dolly Parton song is Bargain Store. I can't remember the year that this album came out, album by the same name. But uh, for, for the lay Dolly Parton, Dolly Parton listener who's, you know, Jolene might be the first song that jumps to mind for, for, such, a, uh, for such a fan. Um, you'll dig this. If, if you like Jolene, you'll love The Bargain Store. It's that same sort of minor key, that same sort of like dark sense about the song. Um, and it's in this song, Dolly Parton embodies uh, a woman who she tells a first person story as a woman who has been used uh, in some way, physically and emotionally, we presume. And she's saying, you know, my, my heart is like something you'd find in a bargain store. And so is my body. It's a, it's a little bit, it's been used, but it's still good. And I love this song because that's like the that's like the ultimate crossroads of gender and class uh, in that song. And, you know, I grew up shopping at, um, you know, my family, we went to yard sales and thrift stores for everything that we could. And in this song, she's uh, using that as, as this incredible metaphor. That's, uh, that's working class feminism at work. Sarah Smarsh, if I may be totally presumptuous, I'd just like to thank you on behalf of all of Kansas for your work. And uh, thanks for spending a little bit of time with the Kansas Reflector today. That that means so much to me. I'm a huge fan of what you all are doing. Um, civic journalism is like the, um, the, the only path forward for uh, saving everything that needs saving. And my hat's off to you and, and thanks for the good words. 